This is the voice of the narrated Puritan podcast and today's lesson on Christian experience and assurance and analysis is number eight. Today we are going to talk about the dark night of the soul. In Pilgrim's Progress, it would be the castle of giant despair or the valley of the shadow of death as well. Archer Ball Alexander says, We have before shown how the principle of spiritual life is affected in its appearances by two circumstances, the degree of vigor given to it in its commencement and the degree of knowledge and maturity of judgment which one may possess above another. So the strength of the communication of the Holy Spirit in enlivening the affections, we might say, and how much maturity of judgment and knowledge the believer has at the time of his conversion. But he says we come now to another pregnant cause of the great variety which is found in the exercises and comforts of real Christians. And that is the difference of temperament, which is so familiar, and which so frequently modifies the characters as well as the feelings of men and other manners. There can be no doubt, I think, that the susceptibility of lively emotion is exceedingly different in men under the same circumstances. Persons of strong affections and ardent temperament, upon an unexpected bereavement of a beloved wife or child, are thrown into an agony of grief, which is scarcely tolerable, while those of a cold, phlegmatic temperament seem to suffer no exquisite anguish from this or any other cause. Not that they possess more fortitude, or more resigned, for the contrary may be the fact but their susceptibilities are less acute, or how they receive this news is less sharp to their emotional sensibilities. And this disparity or difference appears in nothing more remarkable than in a tendency to entertain different degrees of hope or fear in similar circumstances. For while some will hope whenever there is the smallest ground for a favorable result, others are sure to fear the worst which can possibly happen and their apprehensions are proportioned to the magnitude of the interest at stake. Now, it is amazing that men's religious feelings should be affected so much by the same causes, so differently. When two exercised persons speak of their convictions of sin, their sorrows for sin, and their hopes of conversion, is it not to be expected that with the same truths before their mind, those of a sanguine temperament will experience more sensible emotions and upon the same evidence entertain more confident hopes than those of a contrary disposition. And of necessity, the joy of the one will be much livelier than that of the other. So, you can have two persons whose experience may have been very similar as to their conviction of sin and their exercise of faith and repentance, and yet the one will express a strong confidence of having passed from death unto life, while the other is afraid to express a trembling hope. Of these two classes of Christians, the first is the most comfortable, but the latter is safest. Well, why is that? Because a person of an introverted, introspective temperament is only going to be satisfied with the highest assurance of the reality of their faith. By far the most distressing cases of conscience with which the spiritual physician, the spiritual doctor, the pastor who has some knowledge of spiritual cures and causes, 
are owing to a morbid temperament. As most people are inclined to conceal their spiritual distresses, few have any conception of the number of people who are habitually suffering under the frightful malady of melancholy. Now, I'm quoting Archibald Alexander, but it's really important to note if you read anything before 1850 on this subject, melancholy is referring back to not just temperament, but the physiological causes behind it. And so it is more of a disease. And the disease being physiological, the body, or what affects the body, is also going to affect the spiritual mind. With some, this disease is not permanent, but only occasional. They only have periodical paroxysms of deep religious depression, and they may be said to have their compensation for the dark and cloudy day by being favored with one of peculiar brightness. In quick succession, if their gloom was uninterrupted, it would be overwhelming to them. But usually after a dark night, there arises a lovely morning without the shadow of a cloud. From Pilgrim's Progress, A Valley of the Shadow of Death Scarcely has a good fight been fought to battle with Apollyon, when a horror of great darkness overcast the veil, and gloomy terror thronged upon the pilgrim's soul, and he walks that live-long night through a darkness that might be felt and through spiritual antagonisms that intensified both the darkness and the danger. The whole scene, from the first assault of Apollyon to the sun rising in the valley, is a continued series of perils encountered, dangers avoided, and difficulties overcome that seemed insuperable or insurmountable. The shadow of death. This must be understood as a season of rising doubts and returning convictions and dark surmisings as to one's spiritual state. It may be called Satan's hour, power of darkness. Apollyon, foiled in his direct personal assault upon the pilgrim, now summons to his aid his legion of evil spirits. I saw in my dream, at this point I believe these are the comments of Thomas Scott, in his notes on Pilgrim's Progress. The dreamer now sees the pilgrim already entered on the dark valley. He treads delicately a very narrow path, with danger pressing sore upon him on either side. Here are no stepping stones, is in the slough despond. Even a good man falling in here finds no foothold. All help and promise, all hope and rescue must here be found in Christ. In Christ alone, he that is able must pluck them out. Now at the end of this valley was another called the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and Christian must needs go through it, because a way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. Now this valley is a very solitary place. The prophet Jeremiah thus describes it, A wilderness, a land of deserts and of pits, a land of drought and of the shadow of death, a land that no man, but a Christian, passeth through, and where no man dwelt. Jeremiah 2, verse 6. Now here Christian was worse put to it than in his fight with Apollyon, as by the sequel you shall see. I saw then in my dream that when Christian was got to the borders of the shadow of death, 
There met him two men, children of them, that brought up an evil report of the good land, making haste to go back, to whom Christian spake as follows, Where are you going? They said, Back! Back! And we would have you do so as well, if either life or peace is prized by you. Why? What's the manner? said Christian. Manner, they said. We were going that way as you were going, and went as far as we dared. And indeed, we were almost past coming back, for had we gone a little further, we would not have been here to bring the news to you. Christian asked, but what did you meet with? And they said, why, we were almost in the valley of the shadow of death, but that, by good hap, we looked before us and saw the danger before we came into it. Twenty-eight years ago, it says in the Presbyterian Magazine, approximately in the 1850s, we became acquainted with two young ladies who were cousins in an eastern city, where we were temporarily laboring. These two young ladies were well-educated and highly intelligent. They had been very worldly and gay. On a visit to Philadelphia, they became interested in the subject of religion, and they returned home joyful converts. One of them was exceedingly affectionate and amiable, and of a remarkable, cheerful disposition. The other was of a very ardent temperament, and her nervous system was uncommonly weak. Both were very lovely Christians, and we took occasion frequently to visit and converse with them. For several weeks our happiness continued unabated, but soon the sky of the one of an ardent temperament became suddenly overcast, or she felt gloom. Her delightful emotions disappeared and were succeeded by a painful depression. She became much alarmed and concluded that all of her recent happiness was but a delusion, that she was not really converted. Then her conscience was dreadfully troubled because she had made a public profession of religion, and she had approached the Lord's table and had eat and drunk unworthily, as she thought. She read her Bible, prayed and struggled to get her happy feelings back again. But the more she struggled, the worse her condition appeared, until she became convinced that she had no feeling and was perfectly hardened. I would put a footnote in at this point to those who continually suffer spiritual depression because their feelings are of not the right kind. If you try to entertain the feelings, if you're aiming for the feelings, if you're aiming for a more pliable heart, usually to the degree that you go directly after that and not it being the effect of something else, the more the feelings seem to be evasive, the more they seem to avoid you. But I go on. She was on the borders of despair, confined herself to her bedroom, refusing to see any company, and felt that she dared not pray for anyone but herself. This dreadful darkness continued so long, and her mental anguish was so great and constantly increasing, that we became alarmed lest she should become deranged or sink into a hopeless disease. We didn't have any doubt of the genuineness of her conversion, 
but no presentation of the gospel or its promises that we could make availed anything with her. She exhibited singular skill as persons under the influence of melancholy generally do, showing that the promises did not apply to her case. At length, we one day called to see her to make one more effort to relieve her mind. She would scarcely consent to come into the room. And when she did, her countenance was a picture of despair. With as much apparent cheerfulness as possible, we took a seat by her, and we entered into a conversation. We said to her, If you should find a little boy running about these streets, weeping and asking everyone he met, if he had seen his father, refusing to be comforted unless he could find him, would you denounce him as a hard-hearted wretch and tell him to go about his business? She replied with some surprise at the question. Certainly, would you regard his distress at his father's absence and his earnest desire to find him as affording evidence of a filial adhesion? Yes, I would. Well, you have been these two weeks seeking for your father and have been greatly troubled that you cannot find him. You now feel that if you could find him, you would be happy. And yet, you so do not love him, you conclude? The effect of this illustration was surprising. She had once saw in her deep distress the evidence of her love to God. A crushing weight was suddenly lifted from her heart. Her countenance put on a cheerful aspect. She put on her bonnet and walked with us to the prayer meeting. In this case, the melancholy arose not from disease, nor from any affliction. It was simply the result of nervous exhaustion. Her mind had been intensely interested for weeks. By interested, they mean awakened. First under the conviction of her sin, and then in the possession of the joy of a young convert. Her physical body was exhausted, and the result was sudden depression of the animal spirits. This was mistaken for the lack of religious affection, and all the efforts to produce the desired feeling simply increased the exhaustion and consequently rendered the depression more painful. A day or two of quiet and rest and the beginning of the trouble would have relieved a mind and saved the young woman from an immense amount of suffering. Such troubles, though generally not so great, are not uncommon to young converts, especially in seasons of general religious excitement or a spiritual awakening, or what we would say a genuine revival." End quote. Archibald Alexander says and writes in the book Thoughts on Religious Experience, There is reason to fear that among Christians of the present time there is less deep spiritual exercise than in former days. And as little is said on this subject in public discourses, there may be greater concealment of the troubles of this kind than if these subjects were more frequently discussed. It is observable that all those who have experienced this sore affliction and have been mercifully delivered from it are very solicitous to administer relief and comfort to others who are still exposed to the peltings of the pitiless storm. And these are the people who feel the tenderest sympathy with afflicted consciences and know how to bear with the infirmities and waywardness which accompany a state of religious melancholy. It is also remarkable that very generally, those who have been recovered from such diseases attribute no small part of their troubles to a morbid temperament of body, 
and accordingly in their counsels to the melancholy, they lay particular stress on the regular, healthy state of the body. About the close of the 17th century, Timothy Rogers, who lived from 1658 to 1728, who was a pious and able minister of London, fell into a state of deep melancholy. And such was the distressing darkness of his mind that he gave up all hope of the mercy of God and believed himself to be a vessel of wrath designed for destruction, for the praise of the glorious justice of the Almighty. His sad condition was known to many pious ministers and people throughout the country, who it is believed were earnest and incessant in their supplications in his behalf, and these intercessions were not ineffectual, for it pleased God to grant a complete deliverance to his suffering servant. And having received comfort of the Lord, he was exceedingly desirous to be instrumental in administering the same comfort to others which he himself had been comforted with. The result is that he wrote several treatises with this object in view, which are well calculated to be of service to those laboring under spiritual distress. When I first came across chapter 4 of Thoughts on Religious Experience, None of these works could easily be found by Timothy Rogers. Since then, a discourse of trouble of mind and a disease of melancholy was republished, and the others are now available in Kindle format or PDF format from monergism.com. And the titles are called Recovery from Sickness and Another Consolation for the Afflicted. And a third, it was also put in hardback by Solidale Gloria Publications, a discourse on trouble of mind and the disease of melancholy. I want to give his advice, but I want to dive deeper into the description of the disease. So when I was studying to teach this the first time, probably 2019, came across the book, and it's never been reprinted. And it came out in the year 1780, and the author was Benjamin Fawcett. Fawcett was one of the editors in later years who introduced some of the various works of Richard Baxter. But this is what it says, The Symptoms of Melancholy. Man is fearfully and wonderfully made, and preserved, and in many instances, is wonderfully afflicted. Melancholy is one of those diseases in which the dispensations of unerring providence are dark and unaccountable. There is, says an ingenious physician, a disease which sometimes affects the body and afterwards communicates its baneful influences to the mind, over which it hangs such a cloud of horrors as renders life absolutely insupportable. In this dreadful state, every pleasing idea is banished and all the sources of comfort in life are poisoned. Neither fortune, honors, friends, nor family can afford the smallest satisfaction. Hope, the last pillar of the wretched, falls to the ground. Despair lays hold of the abandoned sufferer. Then all reasoning becomes vain. Even arguments of religion have no weight. Another eminent physician expressly mentions melancholy among the variety of nervous diseases. I'm the more desirous to avail myself of the judgment of the best writers in medicine because it is very difficult to convince persons afflicted with melancholy that their distemper arises from the body, 
and is from there communicated to the mind, because friends of such are so prone to mistake the case. It is easier to pronounce it nothing but the effect of imagination, or they despise it, or as unreasonably in the other extreme to conclude it is madness, and therefore nothing is to be done but to treat their friends accordingly. Uh, just a footnote, I believe that's the reason why many people end up in mental hospitals. And, unfortunately, because physiologically they are taken care of often, they don't know how to deal with the trouble of mind or any kind of a spiritual result of the bodily disease. But I go on. If the symptoms of this bodily, this nervous disease, be duly attended to, both the patients themselves and their friends may be led to judge and act with less confidence and precipitation, with greater caution and tenderness. The principal sign by which we may judge when the indisposition is chiefly or wholly of the body is this, that the person accuses himself highly in general without being able to give any example in particular that he is very apprehensive of. He does not well know what, and fearful, yet he can give no reason why. The Puritan Richard Baxter also put together a sermon that was supposed to be delivered at Cripplegate Church in what became the collection of the morning exercises, they called them. The sermon is in the six-volume set, last published by Richard Owen Roberts Publications. But I don't know that Richard Baxter ever actually preached it. it to narrate takes about 90 minutes, but there's some helpful things in here. Question. What are the causes of melancholy? Answer. With very many, there is a great part of the cause in their distemper, weakness, and diseasedness of the body, and by it, the soul is greatly disabled to any comfortable sense. But the more it arises from such natural necessity, it is the less sinful and less dangerous to the soul, but nevertheless troublesome, but the more. Three diseases cause overmuch sorrow. One, those that consist in such violent pain as natural strength is unable to bear, but this being usually not very long is not now to be chiefly spoken of. Number two, and natural passionateness and weakness of that reason that should quiet their passions. It is too frequent a case with aged persons that are much debilitated to be very apt to offense. And children cannot choose but cry when they are hurt. But it is most troublesome and hurtful to many women and some men who are so easily troubled, and they are hardly quieted, that they have very little power over themselves. Even many who fear God, and who have very sound understandings and very quick wits, have almost no more power against these troubling passions, their anger and their grief, but especially their fears, than they have of any other persons. Their very natural temper is a strong disease of troubling, sorrow, fear, and displeasedness. They that are not melancholy are yet of so childish and so sick and impatient a temper that one thing or other is still either discontenting, grieving, or affrighting them. 
They're like an aspen leaf, still shaking with the least motion of the air. The wisest and most patient man cannot please and justify such a one. A word, yea, or a look, offends them. Every sad story, every disconcerting news report, even every noise, scares them, and his children must have all that they cry for before they will be quiet, so it is with too many of these. The case is very sad to those about them, but much more to themselves. They dwell with the sick in the house of mourning, and it is uncomfortable. But yet, while reason is not overthrown, the case is not remedy-less, nor wholly excusable. Number three. But when the brain and the imagination are impaired and reason partly overthrown by the disease called melancholy, this makes a cure yet more difficult. For commonly it is the foresaid persons whose natural temper is timorous and passionate and apt to be discontent and grieved who fall into this infirmity and melancholy. And the conjunction of both the natural temper and the disease increases the misery. The signs of such disease and melancholy have often elsewhere described as one. The trouble and disquiet of the mind then becomes a settled habit. They can see nothing but manner of fear and trouble. All that they hear or do feeds it. Danger is still before their eyes. All that they read and hear makes against them. They can delight in nothing. They have fearful dreams that trouble them when they are asleep, and distracted thoughts keep them long awake. It offends them to see another laugh or be merry. They think that every beggar's case is happier than theirs. They will hardly believe that anyone else is in their case. When some two or three in a week or a day come to me in the same case, so like that you would think it were the same person's case which they all express, they have no pleasure in relations, friends, estate, or anything. They think that God has forsaken them, and that their day of grace is past, and there is no more hope. They say they cannot pray, and yet they howl and groan, and complain that God will not hear them. They will not believe that they have any sincerity in grace and all of their devotions, they say they cannot repent, they cannot believe, but that their hearts are utterly hardened. Usually they are afraid lest they have committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. In a word, fears and troubles and almost despair the constant temper of their minds. Number two, if you convince them that they have some evidences of sincerity, and that their fears are causeless and injurious to themselves and to God, and they have nothing to say against it, yet either it takes off none of their trouble, or else it returns the next day, for the cause remains in their bodily disease. Quiet them a hundred times, and their fears a hundred times return. Their misery is what they think. They cannot choose but think. You may almost as well persuade a man not to shake in a fever, or not to feel when he is pained, or persuade him to cast away their troubling thoughts, or not to think all the enormous confounding thoughts as they do. They cannot get them out of their heads, night or day. Tell them that they must 
forbear long musings which disturb them, and they cannot. Tell them that they must cast out false imaginations out of their minds. When Satan casts them into their minds, they must turn their thoughts to something else, but they cannot do it. Their thoughts and troubles and fears are gone out of their power. And the more, but how much the more melancholy and impaired they are, in quote. So the advice that is found to those counseling such, in the book called A Discourse of Melancholy and Trouble of Mind by Timothy Rogers, number one. Look upon your distress, friends, as under one of the worst distempers to which this miserable life is exposed. Melancholy incapacitates them for thought or action. It confounds and disturbs all their thoughts and fills them with vexation and anguish. I truly believe that when this malignant state of mind is deeply fixed and has spread its deleterious influence over every part, it is as in vain to attempt to resist it by reasoning and rational motives as it is to oppose a fever or the gout or pleurisy. One of the very worst attendants of this disease is a lack of sleep, at which in other distresses men are relieved and refreshed. But in this disease either sleep flies far away or is so disturbed that the poor sufferer, instead of being refreshed, is like one on the rack. The faculties of the soul are weakened and all their operations disturbed and clouded and the poor body languishes and pines away at the same time, and that which renders this disease more the formidable is its long continuance. It is a long time often before it comes to its height, and it is usually as tedious in its declension. It is in every respect sad and overwhelming, a state of darkness that has no discernible beams of light. It generally begins in the body and then conveys its venom to the mind. I pretend not to tell you what medicines will cure it, for I know of none. I leave you to advice which such as are skilled in medicine, and especially to such doctors as have experienced something of it themselves. For it is impossible to understand the nature of it in any other way than by experience. Now, he's going to quote a book by Richard Greenham. The Puritan, written around 1598 or so, and I'm glad to say that the works of Richard Greenham through Monergism and a friend of mine, David John Askew, are being reprinted in Moby format. I've been able to download them, and that includes this discourse. So, quoting Timothy Rogers, there is danger, as Richard Greenham says, that the bodily physician will look no further than the body while the spiritual physician will totally disregard the body and look only at the mind. But, to quote Timothy Rogers further, treat those who are under this disease with tender compassion. Remember also that you are liable to the same affliction. For however brisk your spirits and lively your feelings are now, you may meet with such reverses with such long and sharp afflictions as will sink your spirits. Many not naturally inclined to melancholy have, by overwhelming and repeated calamities, been sunk under this dark gulf. Number three, 
Never use harsh language to your friends when under the disease of melancholy. This will only serve to fret and perplex them the more, but it will never benefit them. I know that the counsel of some is to rebuke and chide them on all occasions, but I dare confidently say that such advisers never felt the disease themselves, for if they had they would know that they thus pour oil into the flames and chafe and exasperate their wounds instead of healing them. John Dodd, who lived from 1549 to 1645, by reason of his mild, meek, and merciful spirit, was reckoned one of the fittest people to deal with those thus afflicted. Never was any person more tender and compassionate, as all will be convinced who will read the accounts of Mr. Peacock and Mrs. Drake, both of whom were greatly relieved by his conversation. Footnote. The story of Mrs. Drake, who was actually counseled by Thomas Hooker, when Hooker graduated from seminary and had gone through many of these things himself, is a book called Trodden Down Strength by the God of Strength. If you would possess any influence over your friends in this unhappy state of mind, you must be careful not to express any lack of confidence in what they relate of their own feelings and distresses. On this point, there is often a great mistake. When they speak of their frightful and distressing apprehensions, it is common for friends to reply, This is all imaginary. This is nothing but fancy. This is an unfounded whim. Now, the disease is a real one, and their misery is as real as any experienced by man. It is true their imagination is disordered. But this is merely the effect of a deeper disease. These afflicted people never can believe that you have any real sympathy for their misery or feel any compassion for them, unless you believe what they are saying. End quote. The following is in an article from about the 1850s called The Presbyterian Examiner Magazine, an article within that, quote, some years ago, a gentleman belonging to another church brought his sister-in-law to see us. She was in despair, and had been for some time. She considered herself abandoned of God, and her condition hopeless. On inquiring, she informed us that she had been much exercised in mind on the subject of religion. When at length, as she was listening to a discourse in our church, her feelings suddenly subsided. She could not regain them, and she concluded the spirit had forever forsaken her. She was not disposed to turn to the world, was not willing to live in sin, and earnestly desired to walk with God. Her trouble arose from confounding sensible emotions with religious desires and affections. A very common error. The matter was explained, and her mind was at once relieved. In the same city of which we have just spoken, resided a young lady, a young lady of rare mental endowments, of amiable and affectionate disposition. She was of devoted piety and intimately acquainted with the benevolent operations of the church, and she was very active in doing good. She was possessed of a feeble constitution and of an ardent temperament. She was very subject to sick headaches and nervous depressions. In her seasons of depression, she often concluded she had been deceived and was really unconverted. 
On one of those occasions, when the Lord's Supper was about to be administered in the church to which she belonged, she came to us in much trouble, when the following conversation occurred. Quote, the next Sabbath is the day of our communion, and I don't know what to do. I feel that I cannot approach the Lord's table. My heart is like a rock, and yet I fear my absenting myself will injure the cause, for my acquaintances in and out of the church are numerous, and then my parents and sisters are not professors, and they will not understand it. And yet I fear my not doing so will injure the cause. What shall I do? Well, if you're an unconverted sinner, I do not see what you have to do with the cause. It is rather a singular kind of sinner that is as much afraid of injuring the cause of Christ. Let the cause take care of itself. You cannot approach the Lord's table because you cannot feel as you think you should. Can you feel right when you read the Bible? No, I cannot. Then stop reading it. Can you feel right when you pray? No, I cannot. Then stop praying. Now, when you absent yourself from the Lord's Supper because you can't feel as you should, and quit reading the Bible and praying for the same reason, the devil will have gained the advantage he seeks. I cannot give up reading my Bible and praying. Well, then you had better do your whole duty, especially as it is not likely that you are going to be concerned about the cause of Christ any other way. The shortest way to get out of your troubles is to do your duty. She took the advice given and was soon as cheerful and happy as ever. Mental depression is constantly mistaken for the lack of religious feeling. And Christians of feeble nervous systems are disposed to melancholy are often seriously injured by neglecting their duties and privileges at such times. Still quoting the Presbyterian Examiner, Frequently this disease alienates the mind entirely from religion, and the unhappy victim of it refuses to attend upon any Christian duties or to be present when they are performed. Frequently it assumes a form of monomania, or a fixed misapprehension in regard to some one thing. The celebrated and excellent William Cooper, quoting now, Thoughts on Religious Experience, Archibald Alexander. The celebrated and excellent William Cooper labored for years under one of the most absurd hallucinations respecting a single point, and in that point his belief, though invincible, was repugnant to the whole of his religious creed. He imagined that he had received from the Almighty a command at a certain time when in a fit of insanity to kill himself, and as a punishment for disobedience, he had forfeited a seat in paradise. And so deep was this impression that he would attend on no religious worship, public or private, and yet at this very time took a lively interest in the advancement of Christ's kingdom. And his judgment was so sound on other matters that such men as John Newton and Thomas Scott were in the habit of consulting with him on all difficult points. The case of this man of piety and genius was used by the enemies of religion, and particularly by the enemies of Calvinism, as an argument against the creed which he had embraced, whereas his disease was at the worst before he had experienced anything of religion, or had embraced the tenets of John Calvin. And let it be remembered that it was by turning his attention to the consolations of the gospel that his excellent physician was successful in restoring his mind. The tranquility and comfort, 
And the world will one day learn that, of all the remedies for this malady, the pure doctrines of grace are the most effectual to resuscitate the melancholy mind. End quote. Archibald Alexander. But when I put these notes together for this class originally in about 2019, I had never come across as yet John Colhoun, C-O-L-Q-U-H-O-U-N, his book called A Treatise on Spiritual Comfort in 1814, and his chapter on spiritual melancholy has three parts. And I really, really would recommend it, and I have narrated it. But in closing this podcast, let me just read a little bit about it, and then you can find it at the narrated Puritan on Sermon Audio. I'm reading from section two, Directions to Christians Who Are Afflicted with Melancholy. If the disease has proceeded far or become strong, directions to those Christians themselves are commonly too little purpose because their minds are so weakened that they cannot comply with them. But, because in some, especially when the distemper has but recently begun to seize them, there is some power of understanding and of reason still remaining. I will offer them the following directions and advices, and I'm only giving you a sample. This has not only been narrated for the narrated Puritan on Sermon Audio, but I also narrated these for our seminary podcast called The Man of God Network. Number one, endeavor to understand well the covenant of grace. Study without delay to attain just and clear views of the infinite riches, suitableness, and freeness of the grace of that everlasting covenant. The better you understand and the more you think of that wonderful contract in which complete salvation is purchased, promised, and sure to you, the more your souls will be sustained and your tempers be sweetened under the consoling influences of the Spirit of grace. Think as often of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as of your own sinfulness, and often of his fullness and grace as of your own emptiness of grace, and as frequently of the boundless love, grace, and mercy of your covenant God, of his majesty, holiness, and justice. The way to diminish and even overcome those terrors which arise from partial and false apprehensions of God is to attain spiritual clear and enlarged views of him as of God whose glory is to be merciful and gracious even to the chief of sinners, and who will certainly show mercy to those who unfeignedly desire to honor him, and to be eternal debtors to his redeeming grace for all their salvation. Your thoughts also dwell on these cheering truths that the Lord Jesus has, according to that well-ordered and sure covenant, given such an infinite satisfaction to divine justice for your sins, that it secures you from eternal death, that he has performed such a perfect obedience to the divine law that it merits eternal life for you, and that life eternal is the infinite free gift of God to you. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast, Christian Experience and Assurance. This episode is called The Dark Night of the Soul and the Disease of Melancholy.